Welcome to Understanding the Law. Your host for the program is Peter Lamont. Mr. Lamont is a business and personal law attorney and the principal of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law is a weekly radio broadcast discussing a variety of legal topics that affect our listeners. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners. If you wish to discuss any of today's topics, please call our switchboard at 347-855-8831. And now, your host, Peter Lamont. Well, welcome to episode 53. Today we're going to be talking about the death penalty in America and we have with us a special guest, Evan Mandery, the author of A Wild Justice. Uh, before we get to Evan, I just want to thank our sponsor. Today's show is sponsored by Pogenpol. Founded in 1892 in the heart of Germany, Pogenpol is the oldest and best-known kitchen brand in the world. For more information about Pogenpol, please visit them online at www.pogenpol.com. Evan, thank you for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And so um, your book, A Wild Justice, is a great book. Um, I read it. It's extremely interesting, and it, it really is a, a very challenging subject that you discuss, which is the death penalty and the history of it in America. Uh, before we get going and talk about your book, can you give us a little background about yourself? Uh, sure. I was, uh, I was a lawyer. Um, I worked uh, – I was a litigator. I worked at a firm called uh, Sherman & Sterling uh, in uh, Manhattan, and I had the opportunity to work on a death penalty case in Alabama, pro bono, of course, and uh, that got me really interested in it. And uh, I, um, I left to become a, a professor and a writer. I, I also have a career as a novelist. And um, so I was able to, in telling this story, integrate my two passions. Well, that's great. Um, you know, this is a very, very difficult subject for people to understand the history of. And, you know, it's a current debate. I mean, it's something that has gone on for years and years, and it continues today. Um, what was your experience writing the book? Because I know that you got to speak to people uh, like Alan Dershowitz, who obviously is very well known, not just within the legal community, but, but to everyone. What was your experience like researching and gathering the information for the book? I mean, it was, uh, you know, aside from uh, getting married and having kids, the, the, best, uh, the best experience of my life, I got to speak with people I never otherwise would have met. And uh, I, was, um, it was, I was at the right time uh, because if I had tried to do this a little earlier, I think it would have been um, – too recent that uh, history so that some of the law clerks might not have felt uh, willing to speak with me, but they felt an obligation to history. Most, almost all of the key players, all the justices are dead, uh, so they didn't feel any obligation to them. And uh, as for the litigators, um, these, these people are American heroes, and um, in a few instances I got to be friends with them. It was very, it's, it's thrilling. It still thrills me that I'm in touch with many of them. Well, it's really good. I mean, you look at someone like Alan Dershowitz, and I think people know him, they know of him, but uh, to read the book and to understand his history with the death penalty is, is actually very fascinating. I don't think it's a fact that most people realize. 
Um, yeah. Can you give us a little information about that? Sure. Um, Dershowitz was um, a law clerk to um, a, a short-tenured but extremely important uh, Supreme Court justice named Arthur Goldberg, who left the court after three years to become ambassador to the United Nations. He later ran for governor of New York and lost. Um, but Dershowitz was a kid. He was 23 years old. He clerked for Goldberg and uh, Goldberg for a variety of reasons undertook a project of trying to uh, end the death penalty in the United States, and Dershowitz was his uh, co-conspirator in that effort. And um, it's, it's really the best part of Dershowitz. I mean, it's, it's pure passion, commitment to civil liberties. He's extremely eloquent about it. I mean, he does, he's done so many things in his life that this gets drowned out in the story. But actually, if you read his books, it's it's always in there. He always talks about it, and um, he was very gracious to me. I, uh, he, he turned over some personal files to me and, and spoke with me a, a number of times, and uh, it was, you know, as, uh, as thrilling and fascinating as you might imagine. You know, I think that when you talk about the death penalty, you know, you mentioned that you had gotten involved with it on a pro bono case. Um, I don't think that death penalty work, quite honestly, is something that is for everyone, and I think that You've got very, very uh, varying points of view. You've got those people, and I'm talking about litigators and the general public, who are all for it, and they can't see anything else. And then those people that are all against it, and the middle of the road gets kind of lost. Um, you know, how, what, what is your stance personally on the death penalty? We can talk about some of the, uh, the Eighth Amendment rights and that sort of thing later, but just in general, how do you feel personally? Uh, I'll answer the question, although I, I keep that out of the book and I, I try to really make it a minimal part of this conversation. Um, my uh, investment in the, in the book is that it's really a story about how the Supreme Court operates and um, all of the various psychological, sociological, historical factors um, that lead to cases being decided. And, and I, I try to tell the story in a way I think that's quite different um, even then, um, Jeffrey Tubin, and if you read uh, Woodward and Armstrong's The Brethren, because I mm -hmm. have so many different perspectives. So I'll answer the question, but it's, it's not my project to, uh, uh, through this book, to proselytize about the death penalty. I'm, uh, I, I describe myself as a non-moralistic opponent of, of capital punishment. I, 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 um, I have a, I'm not religious, but I have a, a vague uh, spiritual belief that we should only kill people as a as a last resort, um, and that the state should certainly only kill people as a last resort. And uh, I don't see that there's any purpose um, that's being advanced by punishment uh, by the cap by capital punishment. And I think it's um, extremely discriminatory, both economically and and racially. I will say a, a caveat that almost every argument uh, against the death penalty is equally or more forcefully an argument against long prison sentences. Um, so I think the, the, the focus, the singling out on, of capital punishment is, is, uh, is a little bit unjustified. I understand why it fascinates people, but um, the criminal justice system in America is highly problematic. Um, and uh, I, 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 live, I work at a, a college that's devoted to the study of criminal justice, so uh, I'm in touch with this. The tide has kind of turned on that, and the paradigm is shifting, and people see that mass incarceration is, is uh, from almost every standpoint, a disaster. Well, let's, let's talk about uh, the history of the death penalty and, and where it came from, because 
you know, my general understanding, I'm not a criminal lawyer, and I sort of stay away from that because of, of my own moral beliefs, and it, it, it's something that um, is very dangerous for me, and, and I stay away. But my understanding, and you're going to know better than I, I do, um, the whole idea of, of prison, of punishment, um, there are various beliefs about why we do it, and it's either you know, simply for punishment purposes or it's to uh, correct a behavior. Um, you know, but the idea of, of capital punishment, where did that come from? Well, um, you know, the, the idea of uh, <clears throat> capital punishment for certain offenses goes back to the Old Testament. So it's, it's on the books, it's been on the books for a long time. Uh, there's a book um, by Stuart Banner, which is a history of a professor at UCLA, which is a history of the death penalty in the United States. And it was used during colonial times. Interestingly, uh, it was used principally as a threat. Um, there, there would often be um, mock executions um, and, and, and in some ways what California does, California is a very active death penalty convictor, uh, but a rare, almost unheard of executor. Uh, so the death penalty is largely a symbolic act in California. Uh, of course, in, in, in Texas and Alabama and other southern states, executions are a regular feature of the criminal justice system. So one part of my answer to your question is that it's very hard to talk about the death penalty in America. Um, there's a, you know, in New England, there is no death penalty. Uh, in certain uh, other liberal states, there is a death penalty that's almost never used. And then in the South, it's, it's, it's regularly used. And, um, you know, different theories about why that's the case. Now, your book talks about the history of the death penalty, and let's talk for a bit about the flow, because, you know, as you mentioned, the death penalty or the idea of capital punishment, whether it was through public executions or hangings or whatnot, has been with us, you know, as long as, as we had organized society. And um, in the modern era, it evolved into a governmental uh, punishment, the idea of capital punishment, and your book talks about the flow of the death penalty and capital punishment, where at a time it was almost frowned upon and, and people had sort of shifted their perception of either the death penalty from a moral standpoint or from a, a benefit to, to society. And then it sort of shifts and come back, comes back to where it is today. Can you talk a little bit about that without giving away your entire book? Uh, just explain that shift. Well, there's a uh, there's a real downturn in support for capital punishment um, through the '60s, um, and, and you know it's never possible to understand precisely what the reasons why uh, public opinion moves in one way or the other. But there's uh, definitely a diminishing belief that the death penalty deters, that it's cost effective, and there's clearly a lot of um, concern about the racist application of the death penalty through that data in the 60s. And then um, my book is focused around two key cases, um, a 1972 case called Furman versus Georgia, in which the, the Supreme Court ruled the death penalty as then practiced in the United States unconstitutional, and a 1976 case in which they 
uh, reauthorized the death penalty under some new statutes that states passed to respond to Furman. Following that 1972 decision, there is a huge upsurge in support for capital punishment. And uh, whereas uh, the death penalty had been running below 50% in many polls, you get up to the high 70s in the peaks and and even at the low 80s. In the book, I I have a chapter in which I I try to make sense of, of, of why there's that huge surge. And I don't think it can be attributed to increases in crime rates uh, or even to increase punitiveness among uh, the American people. I think that surge is really a response to the Supreme Court stepping on state toes for an issue that um, people uh, believed really should have been left to the state and has to be understood in the context of the civil rights decisions uh, of the early 70s, which authorized busing, which was way more significant in people's lives than Brown versus Board of Education had been, and Roe v. Wade, which, uh, in which obviously the Supreme Court res- resolved a uh, massively controversial moral issue for the states. So I-, I think support for the death penalty in the early 70s was largely an issue of federalism. And then why it persists today, uh, there's some mix of punitiveness, some false beliefs that very harsh sanctions work. Um, there are complicated, complicated issues to disentangle. Public opinion is very very tough to uh, – the data is very tough to tease out. Right. Well, you know, back um, during the, the first case, it was the Furman case, uh, and it was considered to be unconstitutional. We're talking about primarily the Eighth Amendment. The Eighth Amendment is a, uh, a prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. So, you know, I understand as, as an attorney – how um, political agenda and um, public outrage and that sort of thing can shift legislative stances and you can take something that was once illegal and make it now legal. I mean, look at the legalization of marijuana in Colorado and then, you know, you get all this support behind it. But in, in your uh, opinion, in your research, what was the key factor? Because you've got a ruling that says that the death penalty is not constitutional, and now all of a sudden it is constitutional. And there are people that will still argue today that it's not, and that it is cruel and unusual punishment. What was the key factor in, in, in getting to Furman? Is that, is that the question? Peter? Yes. What was the key, what was what, what's the what was the key factor in getting to Furman? Is that the question? Yeah, I mean, what's how how does the Supreme Court rule that it's unconstitutional, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden change their mind? Uh, okay, well, they're different. They're different questions. Um, so the the Constitution mentions the death penalty in five different places. So it had already always been regarded as axiomatic that the death penalty was constitutional, and then through the sixties. Arthur Goldberg began this project, but it was continued by the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. They began to articulate an argument that the death penalty was unconstitutional. That argument was largely premised on procedural grounds uh, that it was uh, um, was unconstitutional to sentence people to die without standards, uh, as states used to do routinely, uh, that there should be a separation uh, between the jury's determination of guilt and the determination of the punishment and that the death penalty was racist in its application. And, and I don't think, I think uh, 
<laughs> only the the skeptic, uh, skeptic, someone who's as skeptical as a person who doubts the evidence of of uh, global warming uh, could deny that the death penalty is racist in its application. It's specifically racist, uh, biased against people who kill white people. Uh, so certain lives are valued more um, in the by capital juries. Um, it's a remarkable accident of history that Furman was decided the way it was in 1972. It's, it's really a miracle. Um, and uh, there are a number of things that makes this possible, um, a couple of which are, it, it's my, my book talks, treats the, judges, the justices as individuals, and it's, it's five separate stories about how you got to uh, the five votes that uh, overturned the death penalty in Furman. In one case, uh, William Brennan was really a committed opponent of capital punishment. Thurgood Marshall, the first African-American judge of the Supreme Court, also was, although he was a little bit slow to come around. There was a justice named William Douglas, who's famously liberal and was pretty solidly against death penalty, the death penalty. But how they got those other two votes um, is really a pretty amazing story. Uh, one was Potter Stewart, uh, an Eisenhower appointee, who actually, um, I don't think anybody had ever really reported this before me, was pretty solidly against the death penalty on moral grounds. And the fifth vote was Byron White, uh, a Kennedy appointee, enormously fascinating guy, a Rhodes Scholar who uh, played in the NFL, led the NFL in rushing during his rookie season. Incredible guy, but an, an enigma as a justice, a, a purposefully difficult person. He didn't want to be understood. And uh, in 72, Stewart made a deal with White where um, he would, they would both vote against the death penalty so long as Stewart didn't express his moral opposition, and he said that the problem was the death penalty as applied. And um, White's vote was so tentative, and in fact, he voted the other way in 1976, voted to reauthorize the death penalty, and it's remarkable. I don't think there's any other moment in time uh, where you could have gotten the five together. It's, 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 it's extraordinary that it happened, and I don't want to um, bore uh, your audience with too many case names and stuff, but one year earlier, in 1971, the Supreme Court had rejected uh, a challenge to the death penalty based on the due process clause. And all of these arguments that I just outlined that the death penalty was racist and that it, there weren't standards are really procedural arguments. And the Supreme Court had said that was no constitutional problem. That was a 6-3 decision in a case called Magotha versus California. So how you got from 6-3 for the death penalty on procedural grounds to 5-4 against it on procedural grounds under the Eighth Amendment is an extraordinary, extraordinary event that is largely historical accident. Now, you know, do you think that it's possible? Now, obviously, we're, we're going to speculate and anything's possible. But do you see, based upon your research, um, that we're ever going to get to the point in history again where this, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to rule the death penalty unconstitutional? Or do you think that we're stuck with this for forever? Um, well, you know, this is, a, this, is a, this is all a gamble, and I'm a gambler, so I want to make odds. <laughs> Um, you know, I'd be surprised if, if um, 50 years from today we still have the death penalty in the United States. Um, the, the United States is, a, is an 
outlier among Western nations in retaining the death penalty. I mean, people, I'm sure, know, I mean, the European Union doesn't have it. Australia doesn't have it. I mean, it, it's, we're, we're, on the, we're on a tiny list uh, of Western nations that retain capital punishment. And in fact, I mean, even within the past three years, uh, four states have moved, uh, have rejected the death penalty. So I think it's on the way out. I'm pretty confident it's on the way out. Now, it's one thing for Vermont to uh, reject the death penalty. It's another thing for Texas to move <laughs> to reject right. the death penalty. And yeah. they ain't moving away from it anytime soon. So the role for the Supreme Court will be ultimately when there are a handful of outlier states that are clinging to the death penalty, whether the court will step in and effectively clean it up and force those states to conform with the national standard. And, you know, whether that happens in 20 years or 50 years is, is hard to guess, although I, I, I do think it will happen in, in that time frame. You know, I haven't done any research. I'm sure that you have um, a, a greater depth of understanding. But, I mean, I can't imagine, just practically speaking, that those European countries that have abandoned the death penalty, penalty um, have higher crime rates uh, than the U.S. does. You know, no. I don't... You, no, no, not, I not, mean, uh, I could take you through the, these arguments. The, uh, the, the deterrence, there's... Look, I, I try to really be fair. I try to be fair when I talk about this stuff and, and, and fair in the book. Most abolitionists would say that the death penalty doesn't deter. I, I think that overstates it. I would say there's mixed evidence where that the death penalty deters, but that if it deters, it deters a very, very little bit, and that that's not really such an interesting question anyway because it's expensive and does it deter as much as the benefit you would get from, say, putting more police officers on the street or, uh, you know, universal pre-kindergarten, which is an enormously protective measure. Um, yeah, the, death, the idea that the death penalty prevents crime is, uh, is, is, is it's, it's odd that that persists at all. Do you think the death penalty has any more power than the general sense or the general, uh, uh, um, you know, fear of going to prison? I mean, I personally, I don't see how, if you're going to commit a crime and you know what the punishment is and it could be life in prison, it almost seems to me, and I'm going to oversimplify things, that when you are of that mentality and of that belief that you're going to commit a crime, knowingly commit a crime that is, uh, you know, a heinous crime, a murder, a mass murder, you know that if you get caught, you're going to go to jail. And does, you know, the death penalty have any more deterrent than the fact that you're going to go to jail and spend the rest of your life there? No. I don't know that it does, right? No, no there's, very, there's very little... There's very little evidence that it does. I mean, the, you know, the things that matter are your perception of the likelihood that you will be caught and convicted. Um, and then so long as you perceive the sentence to be severe, um, how severe it is doesn't matter very much. And, you know, seven years in prison would be severe. Um, there's right. a fascinating chapter in uh, Malcolm Gladwell's new book, David and Goliath. The last chapter is about the evolution of three strikes laws in California. And they, you know, they make for great political sound bites. Um, and uh, the evidence is overwhelming that they do nothing to deter crimes. And there's, there, you know, people don't discuss this fact, but one problem with 
in, with uh, overly harsh sanctions is that they destroy communities. So, you know, when you execute somebody, uh, you orphan somebody too, and that person is much more likely uh, to end up a criminal because he loses part of his support network. The data on this is over, it's overwhelming with incarceration. I mean, first of all, if you're born a black male in the United States, the chance that you will end up at some point in your life involved in the criminal justice system is staggering. And it more or less quadruples the risk that your kid will become involved in the criminal justice system. So, you know, I, I say this all the time. I teach about this stuff all the time. Uh, when people people will ask me, does the person deserve, does Hitler deserve to die? Does, uh, you know, the person in Newtown deserve to die? And I understand that back and forth. Um, it's hard for me to talk about giving people in the criminal justice system what they deserve in a in a country where a fifth of kids live in poverty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I want to have the whole conversation about dessert, but I just don't think it's a helpful way to talk about the world from a public policy standpoint in terms of keeping people safe and keeping taxes low. The death penalty and overly harsh sanctions are massively counterproductive. You know, you would almost want to argue that if it had been a productive deterrent, that there would be nobody on death row now because over the years of seeing, hey, people do die, people would, would wise up and say, all right, we're not going to you know, get to that point anymore. But it hasn't happened. Um, and, and I want to talk about the practicality of it from a, uh, a budgetary and expense-related standpoint. But before we get to that, I just want to say that you know, from a moralistic standpoint, and I know that people don't always like to, to argue the, the morality of it, um, I think it can be very confusing. It's very confusing for me. Um, I, I am a religious person. I'm not overly religious. I'm just religious. Uh, and for me, I struggle with it. And I often think to myself, well, if one of my kids uh, was the victim of, of a murder or a kidnapping or a crime, would I wish that person to be killed? And then when I think about the practical elements of how you have to go through the arrest, the trial, you know, the sentencing, and now you're talking years before this person is going to be executed. And in that course of time, would I say to myself, you know, he'll get his punishment in, in the next life, and it's not for me to decide that he is to die. And am I as guilty as he is for wishing him death in that sense? And so, you know, I think that when you talk to people from a moral standpoint, what I get from people a lot of times is, oh, if they did something to my child, I'd want them killed immediately. But they don't realize that we're not talking about a week after this happens. This is years and years. People sit on death row before they're executed. So, you know, there is that moral struggle with the death penalty in and of itself. Yeah. Uh, you know, I remember when Michael Dukakis was asked the, the death penalty question uh, during the 84 presidential campaign. Uh, I mean, it's very easy for me to say if somebody harmed my children, I would want to kill them. Uh, I might even try to do it. Um, and I think that's precisely the wrong standpoint to uh, to judge the wisdom of public policy from. I mean, I, I don't I, I mean, to me, that just leads to lynch mobs. And I I, I I'd be angry. I mean, I, I, and I, I just don't think that's generally you make good public policy by putting the decision in the hands of the angriest person. Right. Um, so it's not an, 
you know, it's not an illegitimate perspective for the person to say, I want revenge. Um, it's quite different to say that society should, uh, you know, satisfy that thirst immediately. Um, I mean, you said a host of things which are true. Um, it is an interesting question to me um, whether the death penalty brings closure to victims' families. Um, it's a very, very hard question to research because you'd have to track people over a long period of time, right, and ask them questions that they probably wouldn't want to answer, like, yeah. you know, give, give, them a batter, give them a test to figure out how they're feeling, what their emotional well-being is. Um, I actually have to say, if, I really, if it really were the case that the death penalty brought closure to victims' families, it might change my mind. I know that sounds crazy. I mean, I know that it probably sounds surprising, um, but I think that's a legitimate consideration. Now, I don't think it's the case. I think what happens, in, and the little research that has been done in this area suggests what I'm about to say, is that because people are angry, they'll, you know, you'll say whatever, I would feel better if you would kill this person. And then they kill this person, and whoever you loved is gone, yeah. right? It's still gone. I don't, I don't think it produced – I think there's an anticipation of closure – and a failure um, to get that. And then what you say yeah. is the timing. I mean, the death, the, you know, the death penalty takes a very, very long time. I mean, to on average, it takes between 11 and 12 years to execute someone. And then unless you're willing to ratchet up the risk of executing the wrong person, you kind of got to live with that delay. Mm -hmm. You know, the, on the closure issue, which is an interesting point, a lot of people that I've spoken to argue that, you know, yeah, it gives some immediate and, and momentary relief, but then you live with the tragedy for the rest of your life, and the person who's committed the crime is now dead. And how is that fair? And a lot of people argue that, you know, when I talk about it with them, these, these criminals, the people that have committed these crimes, they should be made to live with their actions and live... Um, with punishment and be tormented the way that we the victims are. And that seems to suggest that there's something wrong with our, um, our, our prison system and our criminal justice system in general, because if going to prison for some people is a way off the streets, a way to get, you know, a law library and a degree and food, and are we doing something wrong with our criminal justice system in general? Uh, no, uh, it's it's good to have law libraries and it's good to uh, prepare prisoners because 99.99% of them are not on death row and will be released into society. And society has a, an interest, whatever your moral perspective is, in uh, reintegrating them as productive citizens. Um, so the idea of making prison... Uh, punitive rather than restorative um, uh, may speak to the, uh, the, the thirst for revenge, but does nothing to help actual people or to promote safety. Um, so do you very, believe very that, clear answer to that. Do you believe that people can be, and, and do statistics show that the vast majority of people who enter the criminal system can come out and then lead productive lives? Are there uh, statistics well, the way the, the way you frame that question um, suggests a, a, a causal connection, a false causal connection, that it's the fault of um, 
that's the fault of the prisoners that there's something inherently wrong with them so that they can't be rehabilitated. Um, there, the statistics do show that it's very hard for that often people upon release um, fail. They fail to get jobs and they sometimes recidivate. Um, but tons of data shows that there are programs that are massively productive, that make massive differences in people's lives. So if you make uh, health care available to them, massively protective. If you uh, get them enrolled in a college, uh, a college program, massively protective. I mean protective, I mean they end up okay. They get jobs and they don't commit crimes. Um, I mean, you know, I think people, I, I don't understand why people focus on the Jeffrey Dahmers of the world. I mean, yeah, Jeffrey Dahmer's not going to be rehabilitated and he should spend, you know, his entire life in prison. Um, but that's not the prototypical person who's spending his or her life in prison. The prototypical right. person who's in prison is the, uh, is, is the puny drug dealer who's making McDonald's-level wages uh, who ends up in prison because he doesn't snitch on the boss. Um, you know, is that person uh, unredeemable? Absolutely not. Right, right. And I think, though, that people do focus on the extreme. Now, with the extreme, with people like Jeffrey Dahmer, do you think that in lieu of the death penalty, there should be more punitive measures for people that might qualify for the death penalty in particular states, someone like a, a Jeffrey Dahmer, do you think that since we, we all agree that there's no way to rehabilitate someone like him, do you believe that uh, perhaps there should not be a death penalty, but a punitive prison sentence that is limiting, or do you think that that would start to infringe on someone's Eighth Amendment rights? What do you, what, what's a non-punitive prison sentence? What is the distinction you're drawing? Well, let's, let's say that you've got someone like you described who is, you know, um, in drugs and arrested, and there are different levels of, of prison. There are different levels between federal and state prison, and some people will refer to certain prisons as a country club, and you've got all these opportunities to rehabilitate yourself. But the only option, it seems, for someone that is a Jeffrey Dahmer-type character is life in prison, but should he be entitled to all of the um, opportunities, if you want to call it that, that the lesser criminal is entitled to? Or should this be somebody that's, now I'm going extreme here, and I know it's going to be a violation, but, um, you know, solitary confinement for the rest of their lives versus the death penalty? Um, it's preposterous. I, 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 I mean, do I, do I think that Jeffrey Dahmer should spend his life in solitary confinement? Uh, no, it would serve no purpose. Uh, I, I don't even I don't even understand the line of questioning. Um, prison sentences are inherently punitive. I, I don't know what people think about the country club prison that that's somehow a typical experience of a prisoner. I assure you, it's not. That's the real outlier for people who are in a, a segregated prison population. I won't defend it. I also won't spend a lot of time talking about. Um, conditions that, you know, luckily one-tenth of one percent of prisoners might be subject to. And by the way, they don't perceive it as a country club. Right. Um, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't understand uh, what would possibly be accomplished by, uh, I mean, you know, the average prisoner is getting 
the idea that they're spending eight hours a day in the law library is false. Um, you know, they, are, they have a constitutional right to have access to a law library, um, which isn't really about prison conditions. It's about allowing them to vindicate their civil liberties so that they can bring claims, habeas corpus claims, on their own behalf. Right. Um, and, you know, if they're lucky, they get an hour to walk in the courtyard three times a week or something like that. I mean, how much more punitive do you want to get? Do, do you, would you achieve any greater deterrence uh, by putting people in solitary confinement for the rest of their life? I mean, no, and it's inhumane. Evan. Yeah. Uh, we had some technical difficulty there. We dropped out. Um, all right. So when we dropped out, we were talking about um, the idea of the country club and, and uh, you know, the um, civil liberties, the habeas corpus, and we missed what you said after that. Um, well, um, you know, we were talking about the fact that they, they aren't spending eight hours a day in the law library, and this, this perception that people have that they are, is, 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 is civil liberties allow them to have access, but they're not in a country club. But you, you do know what I'm talking about. You have heard people refer to certain federal penitentiaries as a country club, correct? I, I understand that the fact that people respond refer to it that way, but... It, I mean, it, it, it's silly. You want to there's at the country club prison. Here's here are the conditions. You get 90 minutes to shower, get dressed, make your bed, get some breakfast. Uh, you do get paid for your work. You get a dollar fifteen an hour. That's the low security federal prison in northern Minnesota. Okay, I I I, I don't. I mean, it, it's I, I don't know. I don't know how to respond to. I am aware that some people are ignorant and have misperceptions of the criminal justice system. Um, country club prisons are a false uh, description of low security prisons, mm -hmm. and very, very few federal prisoners spend time in low security prisons. Let and they all perceive question. they all perceive it to be punitive. per se, as a deterrent. But people do have, and, and you know, whether they're a, a minority of ignorant people or uh, a vast majority of people that don't understand the criminal system, do you think that a program of education to perhaps students and uh, jail would help as a deterrent more than the idea that we've got a death penalty out there. If you take kids at a young age, the same way you show them public service videos in, in public schools about 
drugs and sexting and bullying. What if a program was introduced um, as a deterrent measure to teach kids how bad prison is? I'll tell you, when I was in grammar school, I remember watching a video about a train and the, you know, the whole idea was don't walk too close to the train tracks because one day you're going to get sucked under and you're going to be you know, chopped to bits because of this train. And to this day as an adult, I remember that video and I think I'm not going to walk too close to the train tracks. So do you think that education of students about prison and sort of breaking that, that ignorant belief of, oh, it's not that bad, it'll be okay, would be helpful? Um. Not nearly so helpful as making sure that they go to college and finish college and that they have access to health care and that they have access uh, to uh, a safe family environment, um, which are the factors that are overwhelmingly predictive of someone who will never go to prison in their life. Um, so if, you know, that's the, type of, that, that, that's the type of measure a politician would resort to in a campaign, uh, it's not the type of measure that produces actual results. What about in, in, in the inner cities where a lot of kids don't go to college, either because of finances or otherwise? Would that be beneficial in inner city populations? To spend money on a video to scare them straight? Yeah. As, so we just give up on them and say because they don't have the financial resources to go to college, we'll resort to Plan B and show them this video to scare them straight. Uh, I think that's a silly conversation. But yet the death penalty doesn't seem to deter people either. So what, what's the option? What's the alternative? If, if people are going to go through life believing that it's not that bad to go to prison. I've had conversations with people, with clients who have come in, who have had issues, criminal issues, and, and they'll say, well, you know, what's the worst that happens to me? I go to jail for a year or two. There's something wrong with people that believe that it's not that bad to go to jail for a year or two. How do you educate those people? Well, you said there's something wrong with people. Um, those people, that, that might be true. There, there might be some problem in their uh, family history that leads them to think that the law should be disrespected in that way. That might be true. All right, let's, uh, let's shift for a second. So the idea of the Eighth Amendment, cruel and unusual punishment, and the idea that the death penalty is, in some people's minds, cruel and unusual punishment, how do we get around that in today's day and age? What, what is the idea that murdering someone, let's just you know, be uh, provocative, a death penalty sentence, how is that not cruel and unusual punishment? What's the, what's the, um, the book? What, what's the pro-death penalty response on that question? What is the basis for the belief that the death penalty is not an Eighth Amendment violation? It's not cruel and unusual. I mean, it's the, the worst thing you can do to somebody is to kill them. That it was that it's mentioned in the Constitution and um, that it's been routinely used uh, throughout American history. There's a lot of things, though, that have been in the Constitution that people look to to overturn and change. And uh, you, I mean, you can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You asked me to summarize an argument. I don't believe it's hard for me to to defend it. But I'm. I, I, that is the that is the argument that people who support the death penalty make. Okay, so. The idea of, of cruel and unusual punishment, do you believe that the death penalty is an Eighth Amendment violation? Uh, and, and again, I just want to say this. Your 
important, and it is not. And I'm not asking you to display, you know, your personal beliefs. I just want to talk about the topic. The book itself is a perfectly objective book that gives a very good and clear history and understanding of the death penalty. But I just want to, you know, talk about the Eighth Amendment. Do you think that the death penalty violates it, or, or not? I mean, you know, if you frame the, if you ask me, would I, which way would I have voted in Furman? I would have voted to overturn the death penalty in Furman. Um, okay. So I don't think, you know, I'd, I'd abolish the death penalty. I'd vote against the death penalty legislatively, um, which is a very simple thing for me to say. Mm-hmm. Now we, we're going to talk a little bit about the expense associated with the death penalty. Um, is the death penalty is exercising the death penalty? an expense for the individual states greater than keeping someone confined to prison? It is for a very simple reason. Um, Only about 10% of people who are ever sentenced to die end up being executed for a variety of reasons. There's a um, death penalty cases are reversed about two thirds of the time uh, for a variety of, um, because of a variety of errors. Um, So the states are paying upfront during this period, you, capital trials are more expensive. There's, um, there's this additional mitigation phase where people are allowed to present evidence of their guilt, uh, evidence of their, um, their character and, and what they suffered during uh, their lives. The prosecution rebuts that. Juries have to be death qualified. So you're spending all this extra money up front. There's extra costs of consign- confinement. There are more appeals. And the savings, which is, you know, the time you don't have to pay to keep the person in prison is very deferred and in 90% of the cases never earned. So you're paying an, a certain upfront expense for a long deferred uh, uncertain savings. Okay. Uh, I want to swing around now to what's gone on recently. Um, recently, the Supreme Court has ruled that two scores are near 70 should be spared because of an intellectual disability and I believe that Florida had a, a law on their books that said 70 is the cutoff so they were looking at the number of somebody's IQ test to determine whether or not they were capable of, of you know having the death penalty uh, as, as their punishment uh, because clearly if somebody is mentally incapable, the belief is that that's a violation of their constitutional rights because they're not mentally equipped to understand what they have done. Um, are you familiar with the, with this new ruling? Of course. What do you think about it? I mean, do you think, because I, I think that the way the Supreme Court looked at it is it's not numbers that decide, it's your mental faculties, but a number doesn't, doesn't tell us much. Do you agree that that's, that's, you know, a good decision by the Supreme Court? Um, well, I mean, I think uh, executing a mentally retarded person is uh, morally repugnant. Um, and I think that uh, to say that the universe of mentally retarded people includes only people whose IQ is less than 70 is simplistic and silly. Uh, so, yeah, the decision makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, and then the last thing I want to talk to you about is um, the idea of there's there's a story um, out of Oklahoma uh, and, and it involves the lethal injection uh, death penalty 
and uh, people are saying that while the lethal injection idea was meant to be a more humane way of executing someone, that in Oklahoma there have been botched executions through lethal injection, which has caused people to suffer. When we talked earlier and I asked you to speculate as to whether or not you thought the death penalty would be around in the future, do you think that stories like the botched lethal injections are going to impact people and lead and push people into that direction of saying, well, maybe this isn't working? Well, I, I mean, I'd have to separate how the Supreme Court will respond from how individual Americans would respond. The Supreme Court... Uh, rejected a challenge to lethal injection in 2009 in a case called Bayes versus Reese. Um, and that case was uh, predicated almost entirely on the risk of mistake uh, of botching an execution. And uh, the Supreme Court said that the, the, the protocol couldn't be rejected solely because there was the risk that, um, that something might go wrong. So I don't think, um, I, I don't think the Oklahoma execution adds anything to the picture in terms of how the Supreme Court will view the issue. Uh, will it make a dent in American public opinion? I don't know, maybe a little, although I think that's probably a very short-term consideration. There have been many examples of botched executions before. Um, if the, There's been this problem with securing the drugs uh, for lethal injection. If states had to turn away from lethal injection and uh, move to a different method of punishment, that might affect public opinion some. But uh, I think this kind of uh, uh, baseline understanding that executions are a messy business uh, is out there, and uh, it mm -hmm. surely informs some people who are against the death penalty, though it doesn't get you to a majority, and I, I, it probably won't push it to a majority in the immediate future. All right. Evan, I'd like to thank you very much for being on the show today. Before we let you go, can you tell people where they can get your book and how they can contact you if they have questions or want more information? Um, well, my book's available wherever, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and uh, I have a website, and I'm a professor at uh, John Jay College of Criminal Justice, and I'm, I'm easy to find. All right, very good. Evan, thank you very much for being on today. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Have a good day. Bye, Peter. You too. Bye-bye. So um, that was Evan Mandry. We were talking about the death penalty in America and his book, A Wild Justice. Um, I want to swing around to a different topic for a second. Uh, we'd like to do uh, legal news, and I want to sort of expand the legal news section today because I want to talk about a case that has far-reaching implications for photographers. And while this is a very poor segue into this topic, I can say that it's related to uh, crime if you will, and police. So that's the best that I'm going to be able to do on a segue here. Uh, I want to talk about the case of Carla Garicki. Uh, this is a First Circuit Court of Appeals case. It's extremely interesting to those people who are in the photography world, uh, whether you're amateur or professional. We represent a number of photographers in the course of our business practice, and one of the most frequent questions that we hear is, is it legal? to photograph or video record a police officer who is engaged in a traffic stop or a public arrest. And there's a lot of confusion, and that confusion primarily stems from uh, individual court decisions based on a specific set of facts that would cause a court to 
rule against someone being permitted to film. Uh, but I want to talk about the general law and then how this case, this key case, is very important and very helpful for photographers. So the general rule is this. You are absolutely permitted to photograph and to video record police who are engaged in their public activities, right, as, um, as public servants. So, for example, if they're pulling someone over on the side of the road and you're video recording that or photographing that, that's perfectly legal. If uh, they're conducting an arrest on the street, perfectly legal. Now, a lot of police officers, unfortunately, don't know that it is your First Amendment constitutional right to film them, and we're going to get into the exceptions in a second, but they don't know that, and so they'll come and they'll approach a photographer and they'll say, you've got to leave, and if you don't leave, they'll arrest you. Uh, well, that's what happened in this Garicki case. Uh, slightly different, but let's get into the facts of the case, and then we will talk about those specific instances where you would not be able to, but they are so limited, and we'll get to that in a second. So the facts of this case, this, this Garicki case, are as follows. Uh, Garicki is operating a motor vehicle, and she is following behind another vehicle. And the vehicle that's in front of her is speeding, so they get pulled over. And she happens to be traveling with them, so she pulls her car over behind that, uh, that speeding vehicle. And the officer who stopped the car gets a little panicked because now there's two cars and he's the only officer out on this New Hampshire road and it's, you know, it's dark. So he asks Carla Garicki to move her car, and she does so. She pulls it around to an adjacent parking lot. She gets out of the car, and she starts to video record the traffic stop. The officer calls for backup, and when backup arrives, they approach her. Now, remember, she's out of her car. Uh, in a parking lot, and they demand that she produce identification in the form of vehicle registration and a driver's license. And she responds negatively. She says, no, I'm not going to produce it. Why should I produce it? I'm operating my vehicle. This seems very unfair. You seem to be harassing me. I'm not doing anything wrong. Ultimately, they arrest her. They charge her with um, interference in a police investigation, with resisting arrest, and the resisting arrest from the facts of the case um, are not someone who is pulling away from the police as they're trying to handcuff her, somebody that wouldn't produce their, their license, and, and that's the resisting arrest charge. But most importantly, they charge her with violation of New Hampshire's wiretap law, and it's because she's video recording the police. And this is fascinating because... That is clearly a violation of one's First Amendment rights. But the police officer doesn't know that. You know, they, they charge, um, and ultimately what happens is Garicki sues. So she files the case against the police officers, the police department, and other um, township officials, and she files it in the U.S. District Court in, in New Hampshire. Uh, both under 1983, and her First Amendment rights have been violated by the defendants. And in response to the lawsuit, the police department file a motion. They try to dismiss the case on the grounds that 
the officers are entitled to qualified immunity. Uh, qualified immunity, just so you understand the concept, is a, uh, a loophole, if you will, provided to police and other public officials who are engaged in uh, public activity. And in order to be liable under this idea of qualified immunity, you have to be more than just negligent. Mistakes are okay as long as they're not grossly negligent. Um, you know, there's a determination, there's a test, they look at it to determine whether or not qualified immunity applies. And in the underlying case in the district court, the district court ruled that qualified immunity does not apply because this is a clear violation of Garicki's weight and there is no wiretap violation. So the police department uh, files an appeal and it goes up to the First Circuit Court of Appeals. And the First Circuit Court of Appeals rules in favor of Garicki and they affirm the lower court's decision, which basically now uh, clears up a lot of issues with respect to other states who might not have a lot of case law on this particular topic. Well, now they're going to be able to look to the First Circuit Court of Appeals for some guidance and direction. So it's a very, very interesting case, a very good case. And what is, um, in my opinion, uh, good about the case is the way that the appellate division, the Court of Appeals, wrote the decision. It is very straightforward. They cite, obviously, all the correct cases, but they really lay out your rights as a photographer to photograph police. So I think that they did an excellent job with writing the decision. I say that because oftentimes a judge or, or a panel on an appellate division will write a decision, and it's so they understand it, but nobody else does. This is a very well-written appeal and decision. So um, you know, if you would like, by the way, to obtain a copy of the decision, you should feel free to give me a call. It's 973-949-3770 or send an email to info at peterlamontesq.com and I'd be happy to provide you, obviously free of charge, with a copy of the appellate division's um, decision on this case. If you are a professional or amateur photographer, this is a good case to read and um, it really explains your rights. But let me summarize your rights for you. Before I got into the case, I mentioned to you that you have a constitutional right under the First Amendment to photograph police who are engaged in their public civic duties and they're conducting an arrest or a traffic stop. You must do so in a reasonable manner, in a peaceful manner, and you cannot obstruct or interfere with the police. So if you are standing five yards away and you're filming, that arguably is not in any way an interference with the police activity. And you're minding your own business, you're, you're filming police peacefully. Um, that's what, what Garicki was doing. Now, the intention behind what she was doing, why was she filming them? Was she doing it because she was aggravated that her friends got pulled over? Not relevant because your First Amendment rights say you're entitled to do so, so long as you're not interfering or acting unreasonably or you know, uh, violently, you're not, you're not being peaceful. And she was clearly standing recording what was going on. Now, I mentioned to you earlier that there are limited, limited, and really limited circumstances 
where you might not be able to photograph the police. And those circumstances are so few and far between. They're primarily limited, uh, limited to circumstances where the police believe that there is immediate danger and harm. For example, if they're conducting a traffic stop and they, uh, the person that they have pulled over has a bomb or explosive device in the car. That would clearly be a situation where they would order an emergency evacuation from the area and you might, might be asked to move or to leave. But those instances, those cases are so rare. Uh, for the most part, we've all seen on police dramas and, and television and in, on the news that when the police are, are conducting an investigation or there's been a murder or whatnot, they'll put up that yellow police tape and they'll cordon off an area and nobody's allowed in it unless you are part of the police. But what you see all the time is that people are standing on the other side of the yellow line and they're filming what they can see. And that is permissible. So the general takeaway here, the general rule is you are free to record police. You are free to record them if they're out in public and they're engaged in a traffic stop or an arrest. Unless there's an order in place or, you know, some sort of direction because of an imminent threat, you don't have to leave. Now, begs the next part of the question, well, what do you do as a photographer if, in fact, you are approached by the police, as Garicki was, and told to leave? Well, you've got two options. You can argue with the police and you can say, well, you're wrong. This is my First Amendment right. I'm going to exercise it. There's no order. There's no you know, imminent harm. I'm not breaching the peace. I'm not interfering with your investigation. My experience uh, with civil lawsuits that involve uh, civil rights claims is that the police are not going to listen to you. They're not going to care. And probably 85% of the time, they're going to arrest you. Now, does that mean that you don't have a, a claim or a defense? Absolutely not. You have a very strong First Amendment defense. But do you want to go through an arrest, questioning, then, you know, move forward with, with the criminal charges? Now you've got to file a lawsuit You've got to get a lawyer. You've got to pay for this lawyer. Uh, you know, it seems like an awful lot of work. Uh, I think if you ask some people who are um, more in the line of, of paparazzi photographers, they'll tell you that sometimes a shot's worth a million dollars and it's clearly well worth me getting arrested and having to get a lawyer um, because I got a billion-dollar shot. And, and, and obviously... We're talking about a different breed of photographer. I'm talking about someone who is just, you know, not necessarily a, a paparazzi, um, but just a photographer. Uh, so what do you do? Well, it really depends on how badly you want that shot. I would suggest that if someone approaches you, a police officer approaches you, you know, depending upon how you want the rest of your day to go, where you want to spend it, whether you want to spend it out photographing other, other subjects or sitting there, uh, I would suggest that you probably walk away. Now, you could always bring a suit later 
for civil rights violations. And you would most likely be successful. Uh, I'll tell you something about uh, legal suits and civil rights violations, which you might not know, and it's certainly something that uh, is well worth knowing. civil rights claims. What does that mean? Well, it means that if your lawyer can prove that a civil rights violation occurred, then they, your attorney, are entitled to attorney's fees from the other side. So for example, in the event that you prove the violation, but your damages are limited. You, they give you a nominal dollar damage because um, the police prevented you from taking a photograph and, and, and um, you know, working on, on the scene with, with photographs and whatnot, exercising First Amendment rights. You get a dollar in one words to say, hey, we were wrong, but your attorney has a bill of $50,000 because he's, he or she has worked on the case for, you know, six months to a year. If all goes well, there's a fee-shifting uh, provision, and so the loser, right, in this case it would be a municipality because we're talking about the police, they would be required to pay the attorney's fees. So it's an interesting point um, to be aware of because if there's a fee-shifting provision, you most likely would be able to find an attorney who's willing to take up such a case to defend your civil rights even if there's not a lot of damage associated with it. So it's, it's interesting to know as a photographer because if you've listened to our other broadcasts or you've uh, watched any of our videos, I'm always talking about the idea that a lawsuit is comprised of two parts, two components. There's the liability section, which is, you know, can you prove that someone was at fault? And, and B, it's the damages um, provisions, the damage uh, section, which says, damages. Those damages could be monetary, they could be physical. But you need to have both parts in order to have a successful lawsuit. Uh, but in this case, you know, you might have nominal damages, but it still might be worth pursuing that claim. A, it teaches the police department a lesson. Uh, and B, it might not cost you a dime, with the exception of perhaps some expenses, because your attorney's fees are going to be covered under the fee-shifting provision. So that's just something interesting to keep in mind. Um, and that goes back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago. If you're approached by the police, what do you do? It's a personal decision. I personally would pack up my gear and move on simply because I don't want the hassle of having to fight with them. Um, I, I, you know, I talk about this to our clients who are routinely getting uh, pulled over for speeding. Uh, truck drivers and trucking companies, landscapers and whatnot. You know, and I always tell these people, it's not in the best interest of the officer because generally speaking, they're not going to change their mind. You're not going to be able to wow them with your legal expertise and have them say, you're right, go ahead. Typically does not happen. That argument, that legal argument is, is better suited for when you appear before the court, whether it's municipal or otherwise. Um, what I've seen in, in context of speaking back to the police is always negative. It always works out uh, against you. And to, to highlight or illustrate this point, 
I want to mention a case that we worked on uh, roughly four or five years ago. And it's an interesting case. It's a, uh, a police. causes all sorts of ruckus and starts yelling at the officer and telling the officer that, um, you know, he's going to sue him and, you know, you name it, he's telling this cop, you know, why he's wrong and how it's a violation of rights. You know, he gets arrested and ultimately he files his own civil rights claim, but deal with the offense with the courts. Much a 